Chapter 5 of The Key to the Riddle, A Story of Huguenot Days, by Margaret S. Comrie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5. Treasure Trove Having escorted his sister as far as the avenue leading to the castle, Leon hurried back on his way to the farm, which he hoped still to reach in time for the early evening meal. And Azarole, realizing among the shadowy trees how late it was, hurried also. While still a little way off she could see that the great gate of the court was closed, and at the sight she quickened her pace to a run. In her haste she caught her foot against a tree-root, and would have fallen, had not a figure suddenly sprung out from behind a tree and caught her as she stumbled forward. It was a young man, tall and well-made, but with a stoop of the shoulders that gave him a slouching air. His face was too thin and haggard to be called handsome, and the almost womanly delicacy of his pink and white complexion seemed curiously out of keeping with the restlessness of his black eyes which even in the fading light showed fierce and bloodshot. He was Michel Roussier, Léon's enemy, a man whom Azerol feared she hardly knew why. Quickly freeing herself from his touch, she thanked him for his timely help, and with a courteous bow of dismissal turned towards the gate. He intercepted her intention, however, by adroitly planting himself in front of her. "'Pardon me, mademoiselle," he said, his tone the familiar condescension of one who imagines his attentions confer a favor. But perhaps you have not yet seen the coloring of the fruit-trees in the orchard. They are one blaze of autumn gold. It is but a step, and the moon will soon be up, if Mademoiselle would care to come." It was with a sense of relief that Azarole heard the step of Blaise, the old castle porter, pacing up and down within the court. "'Excuse me, monsieur, but I am already much too late in returning to my duty.' Significantly she laid her hand upon the latch of the great iron-clamped gate, but again he was beforehand with her. "'Permit me, mademoiselle,' he said, respectfully removing her hand, which he attempted, but in vain, to retain in his grasp. "'It is too heavy for you. Allow me.' But he did not at once unbar the gate. "'Does mademoiselle always put duty before pleasure?' he asked, with an insinuating smile. "'It is hardly worth while to discuss the subject, Monsieur Roussier, for in the present case, as it happens, pleasure has nothing to do with the question.' Her words were courteously spoken. But their meaning was unmistakable, and she made a second and still more determined effort to open the gate. Sullenly the young man did the office for her, but as he lifted his hat and watched her pass in there was an ugly scowl on his brows. A moment more and the ponderous gate swung back in his face. Old Blaze, who had caught a momentary glimpse through the open doorway of the man's figure skulking in the shadow, hobbled up to the young girl who was leaning against a pillar, her heart beating faster than her run up the avenue accounted for. Mademoiselle, he remarked with some severity. It is too late for you to be abroad alone in these solitary country roads. Take an old man's advice." "'I will, Blaze, I will. In time I shall learn wisdom. I forget sometimes that I am not in my own valleys where everyone was a friend.' "'Bene, bene, my child. You will learn, for you are not over-proud.' Azarel might have lingered a moment longer talking to Blaze, for he and his wife Jacqueline had been her friends from the first day of her coming to Castel Brianza, and the old man dearly loved to chat, but through the open hall door the shrill voice of Christophe an irritable altercation fell on her ear. "'No, I will not have the door shut and the lamps lit. I will not, I say. Mamselle is not come. I always watch for her crossing the court. She will miss me if I am not looking out for her, for she loves me. She has told me many times that she loves her little lame Christophe. She does not mind, though he is only a cripple hunchback.' There was a defiant emphasis on the last words that alarmed Azarole, for she guessed whose authority the child was defying. At sight of her entering the hall, Christophe held out his arms with a shout of welcome, but Madame de Rohan regarded her with cold displeasure, while with silent significance she pointed to the French clock that ticked upon the high-carved mantel-shelf. "'I am very sorry, madame. I ought not to have stayed so long. 
It is good of you to permit me to have the Sabbath afternoons to myself. I shall try never again to abuse your kindness. The apology was humbly made, and the girl's gentle voice was changed indeed from the tone of proud defiance it had too often worn of late. Madame was surprised. It might even be she was touched. But before she could speak, Christophe, worn out by pain and weariness, and vaguely conscious that Madame Eloise was displeased with his mamselle, lost control over himself, and burst into one of the old, ungovernable fits of childish rage, which had been comparatively of rare occurrence since he had been under Azarol's care. "'Go away, Madame Eloise! Go away, I say! I love Azarol, and she loves me! And she goes on loving me without ever stopping! Today, tomorrow, and the next day, and for always! I do not love you at all, Madame! Neither does Mademoiselle. She told me so! Go away!' "'Today, tomorrow, and the next day, and for always!' Azarol repeated the words under her breath with dismay. Were they spoken in mere childish innocence, or was there a meaning underlying them? Little Christophe was strangely precocious at times. Glancing apprehensively at Madame to see whether the words had stung, Azarol was startled by the look on the other's face. It was not wounded pride, nor was it jealousy. It was not even anger. It was—yes, it was unmistakably pain. Madame's forehead had contracted. Mechanically she passed her hand across it, as if to brush away something that hurt her. Turning to her little charge, Azarol said in a tone of grave reproach, "'I cannot love with a happy heart a boy who could speak as Monsieur Christophe de Beauregard has now spoken to Madame.' The little fellow burst into tears, but Azarol, without noticing his distress, had sprung towards Madame de Rohan. "'Oh, Madame, he did not mean what he said. He was so angry he did not know he spoke what was not true. And indeed, indeed it is my fault, not his. Of late I have not been behaving towards you, Madame, as I ought.' I have been so proud, so ungrateful for your kindness. Christophe has heard the way in which I too often have spoken. My example has hurt him. It is all my fault. And it is true that once, when he asked me if I loved you, madame, I answered, why should I love a person who could never love me back? I ought not to have said that to him, for— With a haughty gesture, madame de Rohan silenced the girl. You need not make yourself so unhappy, mademoiselle. I cannot remember of ever having treated you with such affection that you need distress yourself so unnecessarily on the score of your behavior towards me." A sharp rebuke would have been easier to bear, thought Azarol, than this cold sarcasm. She bit her lip as she turned away to comfort Christophe, who was whimpering drearily to himself with a burdened sense of having been the cause in some way of all this trouble, which he did not understand. "'Sherry, it hurts the good God you know when we do wrong. Be a brave boy, and tell Madame you are sorry for having spoken so unkindly to her. Tell her you love her and are sorry." Christophe hurriedly mopped up his tears, and clutching hold of his governess's hand, called out in a nervously high-pitched key, "'Madame, Christophe is sorry. He will give you a kiss.' For a moment the boy's guardian bent over his couch, with a trembling hand smoothed back the golden curls from his heated brow, touched her lips to his, then swiftly left the hall. Late that night. Azarol, who had caught a slight chill in the wood, was awakened by a violent attack of toothache. Getting up softly so as not to disturb her charge, who slept in a cot beside her bed, she partly dressed, and wrapping round her a warm dressing-gown Madame had given her to have at hand when the sick child had restless nights, crept noiselessly from the room. In a cupboard in Madame's boudoir there was a medicine-chest. In it she knew she would find something to allay the pain of her tooth. She safely descended the stairs, made her way through the intricacies of the long stone corridors, and had her hand on the latch of the boudoir door, when she was arrested by the sound from within of weeping, deep, heart-breaking sobs, a woman's sobs. Azarol's first impulse was to steal back to her own room again, but something, she knew not what, withheld her, and almost before she knew what she was about she had noiselessly entered the boudoir, closing the door behind her. 
At the table there sat a bowed figure, her head buried in her hands, her whole frame shaken by convulsive sobs. Her arms were leaning upon an open desk, on which there lay a packet of letters tied with a piece of broad black ribbon. "'Madame, dear madame!' Azarel's soft hands were laid against the other's throbbing temples. Madame did not start, nor did she move from her position. Had she heard? Azarel waited, and standing there a great wave of pity swept over her heart. This, then, was the real Eloise de Rohan. The other, the one she had hitherto known, was but a woman in armor. Gently she tried to draw Madame's hands away from her face. "'Madame, you are overdone. You will make yourself ill. You must come and lie down on the couch, and I will put a vinegar cloth upon your forehead as I used to do for mother, and soon you will feel better.' The young girl had at times a curiously masterful way with her. The elder woman, scarcely conscious of what she did, mechanically suffered herself to be led to the couch, which Azarel drew up close to the still-smoldering fire. A few minutes more and Madame, in a state of utter exhaustion, lay back on the sofa cushions, while her self-constituted nurse busied herself in deftly changing the cool bandages upon the burning brow. Presently she saw with relief that the expression of pain was softening in the white face. A quarter of an hour passed, and Madame with a little start looked up. At sight of Azarel she gazed bewildered, but too languid to speak she closed her eyes again with a sigh of contentment, lulled to restfulness by the soothing touch of the gentle fingers about her head. It might have been half an hour later when she spoke. "'My head is better, thank you, mademoiselle. How did you happen to be here?' Azarel explained what had brought her to the boudoir. "'Poor child, did you get the tincture? It was in my chest.' Azarel shook her head as she wrung out another of her cloths. "'I think my little touch of toothache went away at sight of—' She stopped abruptly, hardly knowing how to finish her sentence. The patient moved restlessly. "'Ah, yes, I was—I was—yes, I had sat too long thinking, and—thoughts make trouble oft-times. It was foolish of me to risk it,' she concluded hurriedly and somewhat incoherently. "'I think,' ventured the girl softly, "'I think it is natural, not foolish, for Madame to be sad.' "'Why, why do you say so, girl?' There was a sudden sharpness in Madame de Rohan's tone. Azarel's touch fell gently on the folds of the widow's black dress. "'It is enough, madame,' she whispered. Madame de Rohan's hands clenched. "'Enough. Yes, it is enough. But is it all?' And with that she turned her face to the wall. And there she lay without sound or motion, apparently forgetful of Azarel's presence, unconscious, it would seem, even of the pain that again throbbed in her temples. "'If she could but sleep,' said Azarel to herself. Then as an inspiration came to her she began to sing, gradually softening her clear, rich notes until they were but a mere whisper of music. The figure on the couch never stirred, but when at last Azarel, in hopes that she had attained her object, stopped to listen to the breathing, Madame said quietly, "'My child, it is of no use. Your voice is too like the angels for me to sleep through it. You would have me to stop thinking and go to sleep, is that it? Certain it were more fitting that you should go back to bed yourself, foolish girl.' But if you must needs have your way, then fetch hither a book and read to me." Communicating with Madame's boudoir was the library of the castle. Two hundred years ago books were rarer than now, and for the times Castelbrianza possessed a goodly number. Azarel had never been in the musty old room before, and now, on raising the lamp she had brought with her, and scanning the shelves, she recognized with delight among the volumes names which had been familiar to her in her father's study at Ponifra. Many of the old classics were there, and not a few of the best works of French and Italian poets, philosophers, and theologians. A little doubtful what to choose, Azarel slowly drew out a worn copy of Pascal's letters. Its loosened board slipped from her grasp, and in doing so, dislodged one or two heavy-looking tomes from their upright position. 
Hastily removing them for rearrangement, the young girl was attracted by the sight of a book bound in leather which had been thrust to the very back of the shelf. Her heart beat fast. One glance that she had known as by intuition what the book would prove to be before she drew it cautiously from its hiding-place. "'Already the good God has begun to answer our prayers,' she murmured, reverently bending her head over the volume, which was what she had guessed it to be—a French Bible. With hands that trembled she carried her treasure into the boudoir. "'Madame, oh, madame, what a prize I have found!' she whispered, her voice eager yet cautious. "'It is a copy of God's own precious word. Let me read a portion of the blessed scriptures to you. They will comfort you as naught else could do.' Without waiting for permission she laid the Bible on a chair, and kneeling on the floor turned over the leaves with reverent and loving fingers, on her face the hungry look of longing, which told how sadly the book had been missed during the past months. "'Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me.' In low, sweet tones the words fell from the reader's lips. Eloise de Rohan listened like one in a dream. But at last her half-stunned faculties awoke. With a little cry she started up. "'Girl, where did you find that—that that book?' she whispered hoarsely, pointing fearfully to the Bible on the chair. Azarul looked up. What did it matter where, she vaguely wondered. It was found and they could read it. "'Listen, madame, to the rest. Oh, how beautiful it is, how beautiful!' But madame Eloise, trembling in every limb, was now on her feet. "'See here, child,' she said, seizing Azarul almost roughly by the arm. "'Take that book away. Hide it. Anywhere you like, but take it away, away, where none can find it. I thought it was destroyed. Take it away, out of my sight, forever!' And in her excitement she shook the arm she held. For a moment Azarul felt startled. Then a sudden thought darting into her mind, she forgot all else. "'Do you really mean, madame, that I may hide it where I please?' "'Yes, yes, did I not say so?' Instinctively the girl covered the book with the folds of her dressing-gown. Madame then motioned her away. "'Leave me now, child,' she said, her tone peremptory. "'Leave me. I shall go to bed now.' Grasping her precious burden with both arms, Azarul obediently moved a step or two towards the door, then hesitated and finally turned back, her expression wistful. Madame de Rohan saw and read the look. "'Child, what would you have? I am a cold, hard woman. My heart is frozen, dead. I have no love to give, none.' "'Then, madame, let me love you. That will be enough,' pleaded the girl, and taking the hand that would have waved her aside she kissed it passionately. Eloise de Rohan's lips quivered. Softly she laid her free hand on the young Vaudois's bowed head. "'Child, can it be that you know me better than I know myself? Know then that, although I would not own it, no, not even to myself, my heart went out to you, Azarol Montu, from the first moment I saw you. Yet all the while some fiend makes me try to hate you. Perchance it would be better so, for hark you, Azarol, I only bring a curse on those I love.' She shivered, and putting the girl gently away, said in a voice low with passionate despair, "'I love me if you can. God knows I need it.' Then, fearful, apparently, of once more losing her self-control, she turned resolutely away. Without a word, Azarul slipped from the room. She would rather be alone, she said to herself. And she was alone, that sorrowful, beautiful woman. Utterly alone. End of chapter 5